0: Good morning. Good morning. morning. We want to welcome Dean back from Israel. Yes. Yay. Yes. We have been struggling with our audio technical things without Dean. He has been in Israel on the archaeological dig with the university for six weeks. Yeah. Yes. And he flew in Thursday. Friday. Friday. Got back yesterday, and he's actually awakened with us today. Yes. That's nice. Um, we want to remember Pat Hunt and her family as Pat Hunt's mother died this week. So remember her in our, in our prayers. And then the Granada family as Barbara Granada has had surgery and is, is recovering. We want to remember her. And then, uh, as we have been praying for, for Dennis, who is undergoing chemotherapy and my brother and Boyd Buell, who, um, I spoke to on the phone. And as you know, he had a, a brain bleed. And, um, he is, uh, he's stable, but there is still some, uh, concerns about what direction to go on his treatment. So, all right, let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. Our hearts are reaching out towards you and our minds are, are wanting to contemplate the themes of your kingdom. We ask that your spirit and your angels and your presence will be with us. May our hearts be filled with your love and joy. We pray that you will give us wisdom as we move forward to to coalesce together and and join our hearts and minds in fellowship, that we can uh, join our resources together to promote this message about you. May avenues open that this message may go forward and and change hearts and minds. We lift up before you those members of our class who who are struggling with illness, that your healing hand will be upon them, as as you know is best. And we pray for, for Pat Hunt and her family, that you will comfort those that are mourning. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in our quarterly redemption in Romans, and the title this week is "Victory Over Sin." And before we even go into the lesson, what are your thoughts when you hear the title, "Victory Over Sin"? A reality, an illusion, a cruel joke, something we can achieve here now, a future pie in the sky wish? What do what do you think when you hear "Victory Over Sin"? The real thing, she says. Other thoughts? Thanks be to God. Be to God. Is this something that we should expect yes. here in our lives now? Yes, yes, yes. Any any doubts about that? No doubts, no doubts. Okay, well, let's, let's explore that. When the scripture says, You shall call his name Emmanuel, for he shall save his people in their... Did I get that right? No, no from, that's right. From their sin. From their sin. Is that is that real? Is it is it, we shall call his name Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from the punishment of their sin. Is that what it says we're being saved from? From the punishment? No. No. Are we being saved from sin itself? From sin itself. Should we expect this salvation, this saving from sin... In our lives here and now? Or is this saving from sin projected into some future time that we don't experience saving from sin now? Now. 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 What would that look like? What would it feel like? We'll keep that in mind as we go along. This is, cause this is what we're going to be talking about. Um, this is a quotation I, I, I found on the book called Christ Object Lessons, page 51. Grace can thrive only in the heart that is being constantly prepared for the precious seeds of truth. The thorns of sin will grow in any soil. They need no cultivation. Have you ever noticed that? You don't have to really, well, go out to your garden and water and cultivate the weeds. They kind of just grow all on their own. Yeah. Um, same thing here. They need no cultivation, but grace must be carefully cultivated. The briars and thorns are always ready to spring up, and the work of purification must advance continually. If the heart is not kept under the control of God, if the Holy Spirit does not work unceasingly to refine and ennoble the character, the old habits will reveal themselves in the life. Men may profess to believe the gospel, but unless they are sanctified by the gospel, their profession is of no avail. Listen to this next, next sentence. If they do not gain victory over sin, then sin is gaining victory over them. The thorns that have been cut off by but not uprooted grow apace until the soul is overspread with them. You ever you know gone out with a weed eater and weeded eat it in the garden, and then you come back in a few days, and what's happening? There, there they are again. Yeah, they just keep growing back. Christ specified the things that are dangerous to the soul. The things that are dangerous to the soul. As recorded by Mark, he mentions the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things. So what is it as we think about victory over sin? As we think, if if we're not gaining victory, it's gaining victory over us. And then in Mark, in the Gospel, Christ specified these three things. The cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things. Have you, have you had any experience with those challenges in your life? Has anybody had cares in this world that have come in and tempted to choke out the good, the good seed? Yes. Any, anybody, anybody want to share comments on how, how, how do we prevent that from happening? How can we resist the cares of the world from coming in? Any strategies you found to be helpful in your life? Yes, first thing
1: in the morning, I asked God to show me the way, tell me what to say and what not to say, and help me to do exactly what I should.
0: She said first thing every morning, she starts out with time with the Lord, and asking the Lord to give her wisdom, direction, and inspiration through the day. So one way would be to start out by weeding the garden first, planting in the good seed, and any, any little weed seeds that you start popping up, you... Think about this through. If you've, how many have actually kept a real garden, even a tomato garden? Okay, okay. A couple more hands went up. Okay. Yes. And if you and if you've got a, a garden going, and you allow the weeds to get really big, versus when you see them and they're only just sprouting through the soil, aren't they easy to pull when they're just sprouting through the soil? Yeah. If you let them get big, can you still get them out? You can, but do they pull up a lot more dirt with it? They sometimes pull up some of the good plants around with it? Yeah, you know, this is our mind and character as well. When, when little troubles and temptations come, if we just weed them instantly, say no, resist, turn away, then it's very easy to, to make that change. If we let it take root, we, we begin practicing whatever the temptation is in our life. Eventually, it becomes very deeply rooted into our, our emotions, our mind, our character. We may need to go to a rehab program. Maybe we may need to get into some type of therapy. We, we may have to, uproot a lot of other things in our life to to get free from that. And I think that's what this is talking about. Listen to this one. This is uh, out of AG, page 212. It says, Christ promised that the Holy Spirit should abide with those who wrestle for victory over sin. Because can we get victory over sin without the Holy Spirit? No. No, we need that divine help. To demonstrate the power of divine might by endowing the human agent with supernatural strength and instructing the ignorant in the mysteries of the kingdom of God. When one is fully emptied of self, when every false god is cast out of the soul, the vacuum is filled by the inflowing of the spirit of Christ. Such a one has the faith that purifies the soul from defilement. Now, did, did you hear a couple elements that were important for the, for the Spirit to really fill us? What, what, what would be important for that victory over sin? I heard two things in that particular passage. What did you hear? Empty first. Empty first of self. So in other words, we have to be willing to surrender self. And the other was, when every false god is cast out of the soul. Every false god. Anybody want to throw out some ideas of what kind of false gods do, do we hold on to? Material things. Material things, wealth, money. Any, anything else? TV. TV. Television. False God. And other things.
1: arbitrary,
0: severe God. Oh, okay. She's saying a, a, a actual God picture that is not representative of the true God. And, and with that in mind, let me read you this uh, review on Herald, page uh, December 3, 1908. It says, Christ gave his life that all who would might be freed from sin. And reinstated the favor of the Creator. It was the anticipation of the redeemed, holy universe that prompted Christ to make this great sacrifice. Are we followers of God as dear children? Or are we servants of the Prince of Darkness? Are we worshipers of Jehovah or Baal? The living God or idols? No outward shrines may be visible. There may be no image for the eye to rest upon. Yet we may be practicing idolatry. It is as easy to make an idol of cherished ideas or objects as to fashion gods of wood and stone. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. God is a God of truth and justice. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is a God of love, of pity, of tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and whose character we are seeking to imitate, we are worshiping the true God. Did you hear this? Okay, we're talking about victory over sin. What is it that obstructs our ability to achieve victory over sin? The suggestion made is that we can't have victory without the indwelling Spirit. We all would agree with that, true? Yes, because it's not in our power. And the suggestion made is what obstructs the spirit from indwelling in our heart. Idolatry, holding to false god concepts, worshipping a false god. And then the suggestion is further articulated here that we don't have to have a little image that we bow down to. We can actually be going to church every week. We can be worshipping a being we call Jesus or Jehovah or Yahweh. That we can inculcate him with attributes that are not... Inherent in God, that are actually in the enemy. So we can actually be worshipping in church every week, calling ourselves Christian. Yet, being holding to this false God concept, it would obstruct our ability to experience victory. Does that make sense? And notice the attributes she said that are the attributes of a true God. Truth, justice, mercy, tender compassion, pity, patience, long-suffering, love, These are the attributes of the true God. Have you ever heard God presented in in a different light? An angry God, a wrathful God, a punishing God? Could a person be a Christian, baptized, member of the church, and not experience victory simply because the whole idea of God that they hold is distorted? Could that be a possibility? I want to explore a little bit about
1: justice as being with God. When I begin to think of that. terms of fairness. I mean a lot of people look at justice as that's his mean side and when he gets you back. I look at justice as fairness where he doesn't uh, unduly give credit to somebody who doesn't it who doesn't deserve it and unduly you know discredit him where he treats everybody fairly
0: and rightly. She said she wants to talk about justice for a minute and that she sees God's justice as God being fair. That uh that he he doesn't play favourites. That it's not simply about an arbitrary imposition of penalties, but it's, it's people being treated based on their own, what? Condition? You can't,
1: you can't um, buffalo God. He sees, you, he sees the truth
0: and he deals fairly with people. Justice in any system. Would we not agree that in any system of government, that justice is based on the, the presiding law of that jurisdiction?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Isn't that what it's based upon? In our in our government in the U.S., what's the ultimate um, uh, arbiter of justice? Or, or, or the Constitution of the United States, uh, interpreted by the Supreme Court—that's its job to interpret the Constitution. That's what our justice system is based upon. Uh, what is the basis of justice in the government of God? What is His government built upon? Based upon? It's the law, it's the law of love. So justice in God's kingdom will always be predicated or built upon or interpretation or extrapolation or expression of the law of love. That's what justice always looks like with God. He always does the right thing, always does the reasonable thing, always does the the just, the just, right, reasonable, healthy thing. That's what God always does. Yeah. And I think sometimes we project our human ideas of justice onto that. What about the statement where it says in Scripture, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Is that an encouraging statement for you to read? No. She said no. Yes.
1: Yes. Because the context is he makes rain to shine on the just and the unjust. He treats us with the same benevolence.
0: So God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, regardless of us.
1: So our benevolence to others should be also, uh, not just because we have to like one person or another.
0: Well, you should call me on this, because I did something that we, we do very commonly in Christianity. I plucked a, a verse up out of Scripture, and I threw it out at you. Be perfect, as your Father in Heaven is perfect. You should say, wait, let's read that in context. What's happening there? What, what does it mean? What, what was Christ talking about? See if this makes a difference for you. This is Matthew 5, 43-48. says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Does that change the whole tenor of what that means to you? Yeah. Yes. How do you hear it now? What's it mean to be perfect as Father in Heaven is perfect? To love, to love others. To not be prejudicial. To not be self-centered. To not be arrogant. To not be bigoted. <laughs> to not be egotistical. To actually really care about other people, that you want to help other people. Isn't that what it means? Yes. Yeah. Does that take a lot of pressure off? Have you ever heard this growing up? Be perfect and then and then your mind immediately started going to all the list of behaviors you have to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Well <laughs> and that's an impossibility, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I've always heard that our work as Christians is to stay close to the Lord and not worry about focusing on our own misdeeds and our weaknesses, but focus on him, and then the rest will be taken
0: care of she said she's always heard that our, our work is to to focus on our relationship with Christ. you know fix your eyes on him and not worry about our own uh, focusing on our own shortcomings and misdeeds. I like that very much, and not only focusing on Christ but focusing on how we can be useful in his cause and how we can use our energies to bless others, become a giver rather than a taker isn't it. That-
1: if you know you have a lot of sin in your life and you feel like you can't come to Him because of that sin, you've got to open your door to your <clears throat> heart wherever you are, whatever stage you're
0: in. Okay, she threw out another comment that I think we ought to explore. If you know you have a lot of sin in your life and, and you, it makes you uncomfortable coming to Him, um, you know this can, sometimes can be a barrier. What does it mean, that statement? You've got a lot of sin in your life. You ever, you ever had heard that, felt that, thought that, been told that? So what's it mean to have a lot of sin in your life? Who in this room doesn't have a lot of sin in their life? I'd like to meet you. Come introduce yourself to me afterwards. We might have an angel in hiding in here. No, don't we all have sin in our lives? Yeah, but what is it? What is sin? In fact, in fact, let, 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 let's, let's jump into our, into our lesson a little more, because I've got a whole section coming up here on next page. What is sin? Keep, keep that in mind. What is sin? I, I like the text out of Micah six eight, talking about this victory, being perfect. This is what, it, what Micah says. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good, and, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Isn't that a hard attitude? To have a humble heart, to love the right, and to, and to make choices that are in harmony with a hard attitude that loves the right things, the just things. That's what it's telling us. This week I thought we would do something just a little different than going straight through the lesson and, and reading sections out of the lesson and examining it. We, we might get to that. But the lesson quarterly this week is on the, the chapter of Romans 6. And I thought we might read Romans 6 by sections and explore those sections. And the first section here is Romans 6, 1 through 4. And you can turn in your Bibles, Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Would anyone like to explain that? What does that mean? We've read the words. What does it mean? How about this one? What does it mean to die to sin? What does that mean? To die to sin. We just talked about sin. What does it mean to die to sin?
1: Die
0: to self. Is it? Is And so now we need to... She says die to self. Oh, I like that. We need to maybe answer that question. What is sin? We're going to die to it. What is it? Is it a commodity? Something that could be transferred from person to sacrificial animal. Something
1: in your mind.
0: Something in your mind, she says. Is it something that, uh, that is uh, a record, that we die to our records? It's something recorded in heavenly books that we're judged by? Is that what sin is? Yes.
1: We have to look at sin and ask, is it a noun, is it a verb, or is it a condition? Think about the uh, putting these little things on the head of the goat. And taking it out into the wilderness, you know, and putting them in the bottom of the ocean. Or, or maybe it's an action.
0: He said, "Is it is sin a noun? Is it a verb? Is it a condition?" We we talk about putting these little things on the head of a goat or casting them into the deep sea. What, what does that mean? Yeah, good questions. I spoke to uh, uh, three over 350 high school students uh, within the last year, and I passed out three by five cards, and I asked them to answer a question for me and write it on anonymously. What is sin? 350 high school students answered the question, what is sin? I won't read you 350 answers, but I've got some of the answers, and I thought you might find interesting what the high school students answered is, what is sin? And here's some of the answers. And act against what God stands for. It is something that separates us from God. To do something that is morally wrong. Anything evil or unjust. Something that brings us down. The absence of anything good, anything not of God. Doing anything you know in your gut is wrong. Bad stuff. (laughs) A bad thing that Satan discovered and brought upon us. The cause of all pain and suffering. When you do something you feel guilty about. Anything that makes God unhappy. Something to be forgiven. Whatever you do wrong and you don't even care what you did. And then these two, next two answers were submitted by more than 10% of the student body. Sin is not following the Ten Commandments. I guess you all would have predicted that one, yeah? yeah. yeah. And sin is going against the will of God. But there were three answers, only three, three separate students, three answers um, that were different. Then before I give you those three answers, how do you break down, the answers I just gave you, gave you did you notice they broke down into two categories? And I know you didn't have them on paper to look at to kind of analyze, you have to hear them, it's hard to keep track of. But they broke down into two categories, and they broke down into these two categories. Sin is bad behavior, an act of disobedience, something we do wrong. Or... Sin is some evil commodity, entity, element, something, or stuff that separates us from God and makes us unhappy. And all those answers, they broke down into those two categories. Three students saw it differently, and this is how three students put it. Sin is the absence of love. Sin is the opposite of God's character. Sin is being selfish. And the last student, sin is focusing on self. It all started when Satan, with Satan and how he wanted to be greater than God. This is the root of all evil. Do you see those three answers maybe differently than the others? They saw sin as a defect in character. A deviation from the heart of, of God, of His character of love. How would you answer the question, what is sin? Any answers that you think would be pertinent that we haven't heard? Which answers did you like? Did you think any of these answers pierced a deeper level of truth than others?
1: The last three.
0: The last three. Did you agree more with the last three? Yeah.
1: But there's an element of truth in all of it, I think. There is. There's symptoms of sin, and then there's a condition of sin. Sin is an illness that hurts the creatures. us.
0: Yes, she said, sin is an illness that hurts the creatures or us. This is out of uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 42. Satan's rebellion was to be a lesson to the universe through all coming ages, a perpetual testimony to the nature of sin and its terrible results. The working out of Satan's rule, its effect upon both men and angels, should show what must be the fruit of setting aside the divine authority. It would testify that with with the existence of God's government is bound up the well-being of all the creatures He has made. Thus, the history of this terrible experiment of rebellion was to be a perpetual safeguard to all holy beings, to prevent them from being deceived as to the nature of transgression, to save them from committing sin and suffering its penalty. What did you hear was uh, one of the concerns or issues that intelligent beings were confused about in that passage nature the nature of sin the nature of sin itself is one of the mysterious questions one of the areas of confusion that people have a hard time clarifying in their mind the nature of sin itself this has been a question satan's allegation satan's position is that sin is what
1: <clears throat> Arles. Arles.
0: Well, harmless. Okay, that there's nothing wrong with it. It's harmless. Yeah, knowledge. is knowledge. He says, "What else? How about say that sin is a legal problem? That sin is legal, breaking rules. It's behavioral. That's what sin is. And God's position is that sin is a condition, a state of being, being out of harmony with the principle of love. Do you remember the passages we read last week in the opening of the Great Controversy?" Satan contended that the law of God could not be obeyed and if man should disobey, that God could not forgive him. Remember this? Mm-hmm. Every sin must meet its punishment urged. Satan. Satan. This has been his position all along. That sin is a behavioral legal problem that God has to impose penalties upon and punish people for. God is allowing this whole demonstration partly to help clear up those accusations about himself that's one of the allegations God, God was lied about who he is but one of the other confusing points is what is sin what is this yes
1: it's Satan's accusation that God is arbitrary and if God had not been arbitrary then sin would be free.
0: Yes, it's Satan's allegation that God is arbitrary, that he made a set of rules because he's the one in power, and the one in power has the right to make rules, and then sin is breaking his rules, and there's no reason for the rules that makes God arbitrary. And because, and because Satan broke the rules and got cast out, he came back and said, okay, if that's the way your government works, your government works on rules, you've got to be consistent, you've got to be fair. If man breaks rules, you've got to punish him. Every sin has to be punished. So he, he, he constructs this idea in our mind that sin is some behavioral deviation of rules that God has to inflict punishment upon.
1: Could Satan be right?
0: Could Satan be right? Actually, there are theologians in our church that argue Satan is right. I presented this to them, and they have pushed back to me and said, well, Satan wasn't wrong on this point. <laughs> That's what they've told me. Satan wasn't wrong on this point. He was right on this point. Yes
1: sin is bad on two fronts first of all we're breaking the law of god but if satan can get us as well upon our sin and become depressed and he's won the second time and my bible tells me whatsoever things are pure whatsoever things are holy whatsoever things are lovely think on these things and i think it's another sin if we dwell on our sins we should ask for forgiveness
0: Oh, well, I like what she said, that, 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 that Satan uh, gets us to, to not only, uh, you know, commit sin, but then to focus on our sin, which focuses on self, which gets us discouraged and depressed, and we feel that, that we're too awful, we're too ugly, we're too dirty, we're too nasty, God could never love us in this condition, which if we would actually focus on Christ, look at God, look at what, what, how God treated Adam right after the fall. Adam's running and hiding because He's afraid. He's afraid he, because he's naked. He's ashamed. He's feeling guilty. He's having this self condemnation. God comes in and says, Hey, man, who told you you were naked? It wasn't me. You didn't hear me point any defects out to you, did you? Woman caught in adultery, thrown before his feet. They're all wanting to throw stones. Jesus dispatches the, the crowd and then says to her, Where are your accusers? Implied in the question,
1: He wasn't accusing
0: you. I'm not accusing i am not accusing you You're not, hey, I know everything you just, I know where they just brought you from. I'm not accusing you. And just so we don't miss it, he said, neither do I condemn condemn you. Should we learn something about God's attitude toward us when we're in sin? How does he see us? As this rebellious, horrible people or as children that are suffering and sick that he wants to heal? How do you look at your child when your child has pneumonia, when your child has meningitis, when your child has a viral infection and is, and is, and is feverish and is, and is delirious and is vomiting and sick? Do you look at them with disgust and hate or is there tender pity and compassion? And you want to deliver them and heal them. This is how God looks at us. Yeah? So, my paraphrase of, of Romans 6, 1 through 4. What then should we say about this amazing healing plan? Should we spread the infection of distrust and selfishness, cause more devastation and and destruction so that the power of God's healing solution may be more fully displayed? Absolutely not. We have taken the antidote, and the infection of distrust and selfishness has been purged from our hearts and minds. How then can we choose to be reinfected with distrust of God and practice selfish methods again? Or don't you realize that all of us who were immersed into union with Christ Jesus were immersed into selflessness and have died to self-centeredness? We symbolically demonstrate we have joined him in dying to self by being buried in water in order that just as Jesus arose from the dead displaying the life-giving glory of the Father, we too live a new life displaying God's glorious character in our lives. Thoughts about that? Does that make sense? No, yeah. Yeah. Romans five, or excuse me, Romans six, five through seven. This is out of the NIV. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection, for we know that our old self is crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died to sin has been freed from sin. How do you understand this? How do we do away with the body of sin? What does that mean, body of sin? Should we begin chastising our flesh, inflicting wounds, beating ourselves, flagellating ourselves? Is that what we should do? No. Is is the problem in the physical tissue? My big toe is sinful.
1: <laughs>
0: if your eye offend thee, pluck it out. Should we be plucking out eyes? Should the person who has a pornography addiction, should we, should we? pluck out their eyes and destroy the body of flesh? Is that what we should do? Is that what it means, the body of flesh, the body of sin? Yes.
1: Well, note that says it it
0: be so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Yes. How do we remember, render it powerless? Is it talking about some biologically, you know, it says in Psalm 51, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are born little babies coming into the world Psychiatrists will tell you are egocentric. Ego means self. Centric means centered. Are little babies self centered? Yes. Yes. How many little babies are eager to help mama get a good night's rest? No, they're not. Even how many uh, 9-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds and 13- and 14-year-olds are still struggling with showing kindness and love to others and they want what they want when they want it. we we ever struggle with that growing up? I did. Am I the only one? My mom's shaking her head. Yes, I did. (laughs) Yes, I did. I, I think you have to come to a recognition. It's almost like an inner self that
1: says... I'm being tempted. I want to do this, and I'm not going to do it. I choose not to. It's like you understand that you have this other sinful character in you, and you recognize it, and then you uh, deny it, it, what it wants. It's like I don't know, it's like a split personality.
0: Any practical, any practical suggestions you've experienced in your life to share with uh, people, and how do we gain this victory? How do we gain this victory? Are there, uh, neurologically... They're, they're, they're the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain behind your forehead is where you reason and think and, and weigh evidence is is where you worship, it's where your conscience is it's where you have altruistic other-centered love and benevolence kindness, compassion, grace mercy, all this prefrontal cortex function deeper, more primitive structures of the brain called the limbic system where you experience lust, passion, aggression irritability, fear, anxiety selfish drives, all these things um Did you know that your neurons, your brain cells, just like your muscles, the ones you exercise get stronger. It's true. If you exercise neural circuits, they will they will expand. They will they will branch out. They will connect. They will recruit more neurons. If you leave them dormant over time, there's a pruning back uh, of the neural circuitry. Now, how strong would you be physically if you ate one meal a week? That's all. One meal a week. How strong physically would you be? How long would you survive? How long? Spiritually, Jesus said, "Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood," he wasn't talking cannibalism. He was talking partaking of the Word, ingesting into the character, think, putting into the mind the truth of God's kingdom. How often are we feeding our minds on the holy, all holy things of God? How often? Once a week in in class here. Are we feeding every day. <clears throat> How about if you ate just one meal a day instead of one meal a week? One meal a day. How, how strong would you be? Stronger than one meal a week. Uh, yeah, but how about if you just ate one a day? Not, not two meals, not three meals a day. One meal a day. Try it for the next month. See how you do. One meal a day. See what happens. One continuous meal all day. Okay. Yes. She says she eats one continuous meal all day, every day. Yeah, it's, yeah then, then it's okay. But actually, spiritually speaking, she's right. Spiritually speaking, she's right. You remember Daniel, three times a day, would have his special prayer time set aside for the Lord. Paul tells us that we are to be in a continual state of prayer wherever we go. Are we to be partaking all day long, feeding our our prefrontal cortexes? You see, when you study the Word, and I don't mean memorize the Word. Now, memorization is good. But memorization and regurgitation doesn't mean there's any thinking going on at all. You can memorize and regurgitate and not have a clue of what it means. Have you ever seen that happen? Got my my little star primary class, did my memory verse, got my little star. Don't have a clue what it means, but I can say it. Well, that's good. It forms a database that hopefully later when we start thinking, we've got a database to pull from. So I think it's good we teach our children to memorize scripture. But shouldn't we teach them to think about what it means? And Thinking about what it means requires the prefrontal cortex turn on. And that's hard work for some people. If you've lived your life emotionally, just going with your gut, doing what feels right in the moment, not stopping and pausing to think about things, then when you actually ever put in a place to think, it's hard. Oh, this is hard. I don't. Know. Just tell me. Just give me the answer. Just tell me. Do I have to think? <clears throat> that's why some people, like the preachers, tell them what they're Oh, this is why she said some people like the preacher, just to tell them what to think. This is why there are whole systems, large systems, where you don't have to think. You're just told exactly, here are the the steps, A, B, C, D, three things you need to do, go do this, 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 and this, and everything's taken care of. No thinking required here. But we are called to be sons and daughters of God, to be in His image, to be restored to the fullness of what God's original design for mankind was. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, be white like snow. God is saying, when you reason with me, when you think, when you engage your mind, it's a transforming, regenerating process that cleanses you. And we've got, we've got work to do, don't we? Um, I don't know if we're gonna make it all the way through. I'm gonna, I was gonna go through all these sections of, of the, um, of, of, Romans 6, but I think I'm going to skip down to verse 15. Skip down to verse 15. It says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you... Offer yourself to someone to obey him as a slave. You are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of the teaching to which you were entrusted and have been set free from sin and have been slaves to righteousness. Is that real easy to understand? It takes a while. You have to think about that, don't you? you? I encourage you, go home and think. Try to take that passage, write it out in your own words. What does it mean? You've got a 10-year-old, you've got to explain that to. How do you explain it? This requires a deeper level of thinking, not just reading. I'll share it with you, my paraphrase of it, but go home and do your own on those verses. What then? Shall we indulge selfish desires because God has provided a gracious cure for our terminal condition? Absolutely not. Don't you realize that when you gratify the selfish desires, you are slowly transformed and become more and more selfish, destroying the very faculties that recognize and respond to God's healing truth. Thus, over time, you lose your freedom. You lose the freedom to choose and become slaves to selfishness and lust, which leads only to self-destruction and death. Conversely, if you accept God's gracious remedy and choose His method, you are transformed and become Christ-like in character. Thanks be to God that even though you used to be slaves to selfishness, you wholeheartedly accepted the truth revealed by Jesus, trusted God, and practiced His methods of love, truth, and freedom which you were taught. Therefore, you have been freed from distrust, fear, and selfishness, and have been bonded to love, truth, and liberty, doing what is right because it is right. Do you think I caught the meaning? Yeah. Does it make sense as to why we become slaves if we stay in that life? Neurologically, our, our brain actually wires in that direction. We actually sear the conscience. We actually lose the ability to reason clearly. Think about people you know who practice a self-destructive lifestyle of some type of addiction, some type of, 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 of uh, uh, you know, thievery or, or cheating or lying. And if you confront them with it, if they're not in a repentant heart, what do they always do? Make excuses, right? It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. If you didn't put that woman in the garden, God, I'd still be loyal to you. It's not my fault. It's hers. Externalization, projection, denial, distortion. This is what we always do. The mind is being warped by this process. That's what indulging in this activity does. It destroys the very faculties. We lose the ability to tell right from wrong. I saw a hand somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't have the verses here, but in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was not the perversions that was a downfall, is because they didn't take care of the poor. They had no feelings for those about them. And that led to all of the perversions.
0: This is out of actually Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. It says, Now this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy they were haughty and, detest, and did detestable things before me, therefore I did away with them as you have seen. What was it? Haughty, arrogant, inhospitable. Um, well, and, and people get confused on this. Anybody who thinks and wants to use Sodom and Gomorrah as God's judgment against homosexuality, just pull out Ezekiel 16:49, and then ask him this question: What happens? What would have happened if the angels that came to Sodom? would have came in the form of females, women, instead of males. And all the people of the city turned out and demanded to rape them and have sex with them, all the men, would God have said, well done, you heterosexual men. <laughs> no, this was not about sexual proclivities. This was about loss of hospitality. This was about a uh, a willingness to exploit and 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 damage another human being for self-gratification of any sort. Lack of love, lack of self-sacrifice, hard-heartedness, selfishness, which is just the opposite of God's character of self-sacrificial giving. Yeah, that I think that's a great point to put out. Sabbath lesson, fourth and fifth paragraph says in the Bible to sanctify means to dedicate, usually to God. Thus, to be sanctified is often presented as a past completed act. For example, all them which are sanctified, Acts twenty thirty two. The sanctified ones in this definition are the ones who are dedicated to God. But the Bible usage of sanctify in no way denies the important doctrine of sanctification or the fact that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. The Bible strongly endorses this doctrine, but it generally uses other terms to describe it. And he, what, did, what did you think about you you read that? It endorses it, but doesn't use these terms to describe it. Yes. Sanctification
1: is the work of a lifetime the way marriage
0: is the work of a lifetime. She says, Sanctification is the work of a lifetime the way marriage is the work of a lifetime. Yes. Does that mean that the antediluvians had an advantage on sanctification since they had eight or 900 years? And we are disadvantaged. We only get, at the most, 110. Did they get an advantage if it's a work of a lifetime? Been Could have been. Well uh, hey, we have evidence to show it was not. Give me some evidence. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Yes, where? I
1: was just gonna say going back to the other thought, mm-hmm. time really doesn't matter. God can do anything in a in a of an eye. So the amount of time would be would lead to what minds might be to accomplish the task. If I left it up to God, that doesn't generally take
0: I like this. I like this idea that uh, that God can do anything in, 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 anything that's within His power to do. Are there some things that are not within His power to do? It's
1: to the amount that I am willing
0: to my God. Oh, okay, all right. So God could do it, but yeah, so we might be a hindrance to Him. Ah, so, okay, I like that. Yeah, okay, good. Yes. Um, but evidence, are there some evidence? Because I, I think you're completely right. Can we look into Scripture and see evidence? That the Antediluvians did not have an advantage.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So those are people who weren't weren't interested in being sanctified. How about if they were interested in being sanctified? Would would having a longer life be an advantage? Mm-hmm. How, thief on the cross. Thief uh, on the cross. Thief on the cross was saved. Was was he? Um, uh, well I guess the, the what I, my mind jumped to was Enoch. He was sanctified to the point he could walk into heaven without seeing death. 300 years. But what about Elijah? Now Elijah had that same transforming experience in how many years? Less than,
1: 100.
0: Less than 70. I don't know how old he was. So we have example from scripture that the sanctifying process to to bring us to the point we can walk right into heaven doesn't have to take 300 years, does it? No, it can happen much shorter than that. Why doesn't it? Because of us. She says, because of us. Because of us. Maybe what we started out with, because of Satan's strategies, cares of the world, possibly, and how about distorted God concepts? Could that slow the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Sister Mike uses the metaphor of a plant. Of a plant.
0: A plant. a plant. That is perfect
1: in its little shoes. A little child can be said.
0: So I like sanctification's work of a lifetime in the same way that eating is a work of a lifetime. Don't you eat through your entire life? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you stop eating, yeah. and we just use that metaphor spiritually, partaking of Christ. It is a work of a lifetime to continue and through all eternity, won't we be still partaking of Christ? Mm-hmm. Through all eternity. So I, I kind of look at it that way, rather than this idea of God, okay, we are sanctified by senility. <laughs> the older we get, we're just too worn out to sin anymore. <laughs> Is that how it works?
1: No, they can become as selfish as
0: babies. Okay, she said, no, they can become as selfish as babies. That's what she said. You know? So no, that's not the way to look at it. But I've heard it kind of talked about that way before. So hope you all knew I was jesting when I said that. Okay. Can, can one be um, justified? We talked about justification the last couple of weeks. Can one be justified without being sanctified? You know how the theologians like to dissect that. Yes. You're justified, but you're not yet sanctified. Can you actually be justified without being sanctified? You can't. It's not possible. If you're justified, you're you're sanctified. Exactly right. In Sunday's lesson, in the second paragraph, it says Paul follows an interesting line of argument in chapter 6 as to why a justified person should not sin. To begin with, he says that we shouldn't sin because we have died to sin. Notice this. Hope you all were thinking as you read your lesson this week. Because if you read the previous lessons, lessons 4 and 5 and 6, the three, previous three lessons, they were making this argument about justification is something that's declared. Justification is something that's reckoned. Justification is something that's accounted. Remember this? This is the position of the lesson. Notice here, it says that Paul's argument is that the justified person should not sin because the justified person has died to sin. Does that mean that the justified, if you've died to sin, is that a change in the sinner?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Is that something that's just declared? He's saying the justified person has been has been declared to have died to sin. No. Or have they died to sin? Yes. Yes. You see, justification is not simply some declaration by God, some accounting mechanism in heaven, some angelic record bookkeeping thing uh, going on where God, God has now made some waft of his magic heavenly wand where he sees us in a condition we're not. Justification is an actual transforming process that we have died. Something changed in us. We have been moved from a position of distrust and at war with God where we don't like him, we don't trust him, we don't want him in our life, to a position where we now... Have faith, as, as it says in uh, Romans chapter 4. Abraham had faith in God. He trusted him. He's died to self-seeking and now trusts God to regenerate him. That is a transforming p- process. That's what justification is. Setting the sinner right with God in heart, in mind, in character. Don't be tricked into this other thing. That justification is doing something to God so that God can look at us in a way he never saw us before. That goes back to that idolatry thing, to having a God construct that makes it hard to trust him. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, says the word reign shows that sin is here represented as a king. The Greek word here translated reign means literally to be a king or to function as a king. Sin is all too willing to assume the kingship in our mortal bodies and dictate our behavior. What do you think about that? Any thoughts? Any any ideas? Any? How would you explain that? Well,
1: we are the temple. God dwells in us if we allow Him to, and if He isn't there, then Satan is. There.
0: Okay, so we have a throne. Mm-hmm. We are. There's a. We are. We are the temple, of the Holy Spirit, and who and who resides on the throne in your heart and mind?
1: Whoever we're worshiping.
0: Whoever we're worshiping, she said, resides on the throne. Mm-hmm. Who are we worshiping? Can some people worship themselves? Yeah,
1: sure. Mm-hmm. Lots of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: When we're saying worship, aren't we saying by beholding we become changed? It's a, it's a, it's a state of mental uh, ascension
0: too. Admiration, yeah. yeah admiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, worship. Finding something worth. Yes. Yes, what the, the word worth. So if
1: we value ourselves more than something, or we value watching TV more than seeking God, then we are worshiping that.
0: And by beholding, we become changed. And this change, by the way, is, is quite fascinating. Um, we aren't just changed in, in the things we believe, which we are changed in the things we believe. But we are changed all the way down the molecular level. We're changed, neural circuits change, gene expression changes. These changes, it's fascinating. The more and more I research this, we are changed and we pass those changes along to our children. Pass them down. I, did, I just read a research this week. 11-year-old boys, if they smoke before the age of 11, they will alter how the genes on their Y chromosome are being expressed, so that their ch- their their male sons, Y chromosome male, their sons will have uh, higher rates of obesity and diabetes than if they had never smoked. They change themselves. Our behaviors change. That's just one example. There's many, many examples like this. So when we look at God's principles and what He teaches us, and a lot of people take this attitude: "Hey, it's my body. I can do with what I want. I'm not hurting anybody but me." Not so. Not so. You're hurting yourself, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren. You're hurting it down the line because you're changing how your genes are being expressed. Passing that along and giving disadvantages to generations to come. This is what you see in the history of mankind. Because God made us incredibly. He made us in his image with the ability to create beings in our image. And so as we change ourselves either into more godliness through his grace, through surrender, through allowing the spirit to dwell, to making healthy choices in lifestyle, we will actually change ourselves physiologically all the way down to the DNA level and we will pass along to our children advantages. If we live a a uh, indulgent life, if we live a self-centered life, an arrogant life, a an angry life, we will change our genetic expression and pass along disadvantages to our children. And you look at this through the history of mankind and what happened since the fall, there have been progressions of de- decay and deterioration happening as more as as society and people became more self-indulgent. Uh it's passed down through the generations. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Last paragraph, Tuesday's lesson. We should not define under the law too restrictively. The person who supposedly lives under grace but disobeys God's law will not find grace but condemnation. Under grace means that through the grace of God as revealed in Jesus the condemnation that the law inevitably brings to sinners has been removed. Thus, now free from this condemnation of death brought by the law, we live in newness of life, a life characterized and made manifest through the fact that being dead to self, we are no longer slave to sin. Somebody want to explain very clearly what that meant? Did you all follow that? Did it just like, oh, that just was so clear? <laughs> What did it mean? What did it mean? Should we speak words that are easy to understand? Do we explain stuff? Um, what does it mean, condemnation, of the, that the law inevitably brings? Where does condemnation arise? Jesus said in Matthew that it's by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What is it that condemns us? Is it, is it the law? Is it our, our condition being out of harmony with the law?
1: It's
0: out of harmony. And the law merely diagnoses our condition. The law was given so that sin might abound or increase, that so we could see it more clearly. But what is it that condemns us, the law or the fact that we are no longer in harmony with it? Let's jump to Friday's lesson. <laughs> because in Friday's lesson, the second paragraph talking about a profession of Christianity without corresponding faith and works will avail nothing. No human can serve two masters, the children of the wicked one are their own master's servants to whom they yield themselves to uh, yield themselves servants to obey his servants they are and they cannot be the servants of god until they renounce the devil and all his works it cannot be harmless for servants of the heavenly king to engage in pleasures and amusements which satan's servants engage in even though they often repeat that such amusements are harmless god has revealed sacred and holy truths to separate his people from the ungodly that purify them. Notice that sentence. It cannot be harmless to engage in these, in these things. And I wanted to throw one more, uh, a quote in there. This is out of Signs of the Times, April 15, 1886. It says, As the supreme ruler of the universe, God has ordained laws for the government not only of all living beings, but all the operations of nature. Think this through. There are laws that govern nature, are there not? Everything, whether great or small, animate or inanimate, is under fixed laws which cannot be disregarded. There are no exceptions to this rule. For nothing that the the divine hand has made has been forgotten by the divine mind. But while everything in nature is governed by natural law, man alone, as an intelligent being capable of understanding its creation, God has given a conscience to realize the sacred claims of the divine law and a heart capable of loving it as holy, just, and good. Of man, prompt and perfect obedience is required, yet God does not compel him to obey. So, the point here is that we are under what kind of a law? an imposed, enacted, created law that we are held accountable for with the threat of imposed penalty? Are we under a natural law, a design structure, principles that all life is created to operate upon? Then deviations, we cannot avoid consequence from. You go up top of this building and jump off. Is there a law at work? Will there be consequence to pay? If you decide to inhale toxic substances Uh, burning uh, plant materials and sucking them into your lungs. Uh, If you decide to do that, will there be a price to pay? Will God be inflicting it? We send angels down from heaven to give you lung disease and cancer. No, this is not how his universe works. He doesn't inflict it upon us. There are laws. We cannot deviate from those laws without consequence. Sin is a deviation from the very principles of life and only through Christ are we able to be brought back in harmony with God his principles, his kingdom, and this is what Christ came to do for us, that which we could not do for ourselves. Any closing comments or questions? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a constant, never-changing being of love and goodness and truth, that you have sent your Son to reveal the truth and to overcome in our place where we could not overcome, to restore mankind back into the perfection that you designed mankind to be in Eden. We Humble ourselves before you and ask that the Spirit will be poured out to take all that Christ has achieved and to reproduce it in our hearts and minds. May all distorted God constructs be be eradicated from our thinking that we can see you in the holiness that Jesus revealed to you to be, a gracious, humble, loving God who wants nothing more than to restore us into fellowship and friendship with you. May we in this group, in this this class, begin to experience that brotherly love of caring and compassion for each other, to pray for each other, to build up each other, to promote your kingdom here on this earth. And may we be witnesses as we go forward into the community locally and, and internationally, to share this message that the world might be lightened for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.